0: grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is taken from the reading in Ephesians. We begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, what a joy it is to gather in your presence to receive your gift. We thank you, Lord, that in your goodness you have given us a wonderful creation in which to live and move and have our being to serve you faithfully. Lord, we come before you today confessing our sins, knowing that we have not faithfully followed you, but loving you so much because your Son, Jesus has faithfully loved you perfectly, faithfully given his life for our salvation. Help us then, Lord, to see how this drives us to serve those you have given us to love. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, in our reading from the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking to us about marriage. And he tells us, That marriage is a creation of God. We might use this word. It is an institution of God. God instituted it. He uh, he designed it, therefore he gets to define it. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we actually see God do this. We see at the very beginning of everything, before sin even enters the scene, God creates a man and a woman and he unites them together. In our reading from Ephesians, Paul actually calls us back to Genesis 1, and he quotes this marvelous promise. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A husband and a wife, a man and a woman coming together as one. That is what makes a marriage. That is how God designed it. And it's really the wonder of the whole thing is that this whole institution of marriage and this whole institution of family seems to be the one institution in our world that is not impacted by sin at all. All we see is nothing but wives faithfully loving and honoring and respecting their husbands and husbands selflessly, giving of themselves completely for their wives. Children diligently growing up and respecting their parents, no strings attached. I mean, it's like the devil forgot about marriage and family altogether. You guys even listening? Like, that's not true. Come on, here we go. All right. No, this is absolutely false. Marriage is under assault from within and from without, right? Marriage is hard. Now, marriage is good. Family is good. God created it. It is still good. But I think that the further away we get from Eden, the more controverted and contested and messy this whole institution of marriage becomes. To be sure, we all know of good and beautiful marriages, that within those marriages there is love and there is joy, but we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't confess that all of those marriages are also terribly tainted by sin. You put two sinners together in a relationship in one house, it's not always going to go very well all the time, right? Sin has significantly impacted this gift of marriage. Further, in our culture, marriage has become political Issues surrounding marriage, gender, sexuality have saturated our cultural climate for the better part of 150 years. And now we find ourselves trying to navigate our way through a world where God's created institutions, such as the family or marriage or the church or what have you, are all being redefined or worse, facing an all-out of What we like to call the biblical view of marriage is constantly called into question. And I, and I appreciate that we call it the biblical view of marriage because it's in the Bible. But we have to understand that we don't believe it simply because it's in the Bible. We believe that it's the institution of marriage, because it's how God created the world to work. It's how he designed it to work. So so this created institution of marriage is constantly called into question. And a lot of us are here left wondering what God actually has to say about all of this marriage and gender and sexuality business. What the Holy Spirit does for us today is gives us a great gift here in the book of Ephesians in which he calls us back to God's original purpose and design for the institution. He calls us back to how God made it and why he made it. He does what we were kind of talking about last week. He takes this thing that is so, so shrouded and darkened by sin and he flips the lights on for us so that we can see clearly how this thing is supposed to work and, quite frankly, where we need to repent in light of all of it. And so what I think we're going to see today is not only does this passage do us the service of showing us the importance of sort of God's institution in marriage for the creation, but it's also going to help us have a deeper and richer understanding, you might find out, of the gospel itself, because marriage, when understood in light of God's word, actually becomes sort of a picture, a glimmer, a hint, a a foggy picture, as some of my friends like to say over here, Dr. Keith, uh, that helps us see a little bit of what Christ's relationship is with the church. I think our, our, church, our, excuse me, our church, our world, the whole thing, desperately needs to be reminded of both the foundational importance of marriage, and perhaps more so, the unfathomable depths of Christ's love. And I think that this passage is going to deliver both of those to us in breathtaking and life-giving ways. So now in order to address the issues of marriage, Paul is going to address the particular vocations that make up a marriage, the particular responsibilities that each member of the marriage has. First he's going to address the wives and their responsibilities in their, uh, in their vocation, and then he's going to address the husbands. So the wives are addressed first, then the husbands. And we'll find that both of them have a responsibility to love one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, the verse that really should be leading off this section comes in the previous uh, section of the, of the Scriptures here, and it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what does that look like for each particular calling? Here, Well, first, Paul talks to the wives. And he says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, again, these are, I am fully aware, your favorite Bible verses. That's why, wives, I always see you walking around with shirts that say, I submit to my husband in joy. Like, it's your favorite stuff. I know we love it. It's actually a pretty controversial verse, uh, to be completely honest with you. And it's because of that word, submit. We don't like that word. But it's a biblical word, and I would suggest to you that if Christ has given this word to us, it's not a bad word. I think the problem with the word is not the way that the Bible teaches it to us, but the way that the world has distorted it and twisted it to make it mean something it doesn't. To submit to a husband is not to be sort of his slave to do whatever he says mindlessly, not being able ever to speak for yourself, but just being silent, always barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, ready you know, with the cold beer when he comes home. Though the cold beer thing might not be too bad. That's not what it means. It's not what he's getting after. To understand submission biblically is to recognize that we are to humbly, and this is, this is straight out of the book of Philippians, that we are to humbly consider others better than ourselves, and look out for their interests at all times. We are to place others before ourselves in thoughts, words, and deeds. And we all hear that, and we go, of course, that makes wonderful sense. And then you say, now, wives, that applies to your relationship with your husbands. And we're like, ah, I don't know about that. But actually, that's exactly what we're getting at. The wife is not the slave of the husband, but the wife is rather created by God to be a helpmate to the husband, to love and support him. And we need to understand why that is, because you see, uh, the husband has been given a particular responsibility in the household. He's been given an authority, we might say, in the household to provide for his family, to protect his family, to love and care for his wife, and to sacrifice everything of himself for the sake of his wife. He has been given this responsibility, this authority from God. Now again, we've got to stop because we're always uncomfortable with that word authority but we need to make sure we distinguish between the idea of authority and what I want to say today is the idea of authority and the idea of power. Power is something we grab, we strive for, we work for, we achieve, we take power for ourselves. Authority, on the other hand, is given. Authority has to do with responsibility. And what God has done in the creation is he has authorized husbands to have this position of responsibility. Responsibility. To care for, provide, protect, all of these things for his wife. So then, wives, your responsibility here is to honor that, not to slander your husband behind his back or not to belittle him to his face. It means to love him, to honor him, to support him, to encourage him in the responsibility and authority he's received from the Lord. Again, to quote Philippians, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility to consider others better than yourselves. You should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, so Paul says to the wives. But now that he's done there, he turns to the husband. And this, this uh, scripture from Philippians not only applies to wives, not doing everything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but that also applies just as much to the husband. And husband, you are to look out for the interests of your wife more than you are to look to your own interests. Husbands, if your wife is called to respect you, then you need to be someone worth respecting. Her responsibility from Christ is not your opportunity to lord yourself over her. Rather, it is again to consider her better than yourself to lay down your life for her. For wives are called to submit to their husbands, Paul says. Husbands, you are called to die to yourself for the sake of your uh, your wife, to lay down your life for her, to exalt her, to nourish and cherish your marriage and your beloved bride. So Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives, uh, excuse me, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, you're to lay down your life for your wife, just as Christ has done for the church. Sacrifice everything of yourself so she might be exalted, held up, honored years. You are to lay down everything inside of you, consider her more important than you are, and to live your life in that way. Provide, protect, and sacrifice. So there we have it. The vocations, the responsibilities of husbands and wives. Paul summarizes it by saying, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the idea. That's, Paul says, what God was getting at in Genesis 1 when he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what he's all about. Almost. Paul says this, and then he has this really interesting verse. Right after quoting the Genesis creation account, he has this fascinating verse where he says this. It almost seems out of place, but it's really quite beautiful. He says, now this, mysteri- uh, this mystery is profound, but I'm actually talking about Christ in the church. And you say, talking about Christ in the church? Wait a minute, you just quoted the Genesis account where God was actually talking about Adam and Eve, and you're saying it's about Christ in the church? I don't quite follow. I think Paul's point here is this is that if you want that picture of Christ's relationship to his church, of what marriage looks like in a beautiful sense, don't look to Adam and Eve. Look to what Christ has done for his church. Now, we should probably reference Adam and Eve here. I'm sure we remember the story of Adam and Eve. They're the ones who kind of ruined this whole thing for us. Uh, But we know the account of Adam and Eve. But I want you to remember now, when Eve sinned, when the serpent came to Eve and preached the false gospel to her and gave her the fruit to eat, uh, where was Adam? If you've been in class with me uh, before, I'm sure you've heard this. Where was Adam? Right with her. The text says, the woman gave the fruit to the man who was with her. What this means is that Adam heard the false teaching of the serpent. He followed Eve when she preached the false gospel to him, and he did not do what he was authorized to do. He did not kick out the serpent, and he did not protect his bride. He did not do his job. Further then, when he realized what had happened, that he and his wife had sinned and they were naked, remember what he does? He tries to cover the whole thing up in a really foolish way. He gets these like, fig leaves and he makes clothes for them, which they just don't do the job. And then he hides himself and his wife in the garden when God comes to talk, when God comes with his accusation, Remember what Adam does to his dear bride? He throws her under the bus the woman you gave me. Eve didn't trust the word of God from her husband, and Adam, after shirking in his responsibilities, passed the blame off to Eve. That's not a good model for a marriage. <laughs> and yet it seems to be the one we seem to find ourselves following all the time. But it's not what you learn in Christ. Because you see, Jesus, he's a different sort of husband to his bride altogether. And by his bride, just so we're clear on who we're talking about today, it's you. It's me. It's the church. We are the bride of Christ. And we, just like Eve, have sinned against him. We have denied his word. We have wandered from the truth. We, as the bride of Christ, still daily sin in thought, word, and deed, and we do it against him. And how does Christ respond to our sin? Unlike Adam, who threw his wife under the bus and blamed her when God came to judge, Christ takes the responsibility for his bride's sins before God's judgment. Christ loved the church, Paul writes, and gave himself up for her. He doesn't sort of clothe us in ridiculous fig leaves to try and hide our shame and conceal us in the garden trees. No, Christ takes responsibility for our sins, and then he cleanses us of our sins. He washes our sins away in the waters of baptism so that we might be presented as holy and pure without blemish. having cleansed her by the washing with water and the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Unlike Adam, who really becomes Eve's worst devil in accusing her before God, Jesus takes the church's blame and washes her sins away in His holiness and His righteousness and His love. And in this way, Christ Jesus forgives you. Forgives me. Forgives His bride, the church. And forgives you for all of it. For all of it. Even for your broken marriages. Even for you who suffered in a marriage and yet didn't act in the most holy way. Even you who have caused the divorce. Even you who have left. Even you who are in your marriage and you're still fighting and arguing and you can't seem to get along and you won't love them the way that they should be loving you and it's just not working out real well. That's all stuff that you lay at the feet of Jesus and He washes away in His blood. You're forgiven for the lot of it. Then, being forgiven, is the church submit to Christ in faith Trusting our gracious dear husband to always forgive, always provide, always protect, and always speak his truth to us. And in this way, when we have a good marriage, we have this glimpse, this hint, this this foggy picture of Christ's relationship to his church. Christ, though, is the perfect bridegroom to his bride in all of this, and you, dear church, are that bride beloved and beautiful, forgiven and cleansed, provided for and protected by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So as we strive for this, as we strive to uphold the institution of marriage, and as we, as we strive to have more biblical marriages, we do so knowing that we are fully and completely loved and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our great bridegroom. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, What a joy it is to know that our sins are daily and richly forgiven by Your Son. What what a joy it is to know that He has united us to Himself and promised us life everlasting with You. Help us, Lord, in our own lives to recognize the salvation that has been accomplished for us, the joy that we have as being the bride of Christ. And Lord, I pray for the marriages in our church. I pray that You would watch over all of us as we strive to live more faithfully to one another, Glorify Christ in the midst of it. Have mercy on his Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.